Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode 53 of the In Lockdown With podcast with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Julissa Andrew. Hi Julissa, how's things? Hello, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for coming on. How's how's lockdown been for you? Um, well, I'm a bit bored of them out to be honest. <laughs> But it's been okay, I think, in a strange way. I've sort of asked for this rest. Right. Um, but to compromise the rest, I think I've, um, t- I've taken on a lot of extra things, uh, which has been quite exciting, actually, um, including chatting to you today. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I mean, it feels like, even though we're in a lockdown, even though theatres are closed, there's still a lot of creative activity going on, there's still a lot of projects happening. Is that something you feel as well? Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are going back to their their internal roots and are digging deep to find anything creative, you know? I think yeah. anyone creative is craving it now, so <laughs> they're, they're creating amazing things that they probably wouldn't have if they were consumed yeah. with all the other work. I mean, it is a shame that we are out of, you know, the big jobs that were lined up and this, that and the other. Mm. Um, but on a positive spin, there has been a lot of really amazing creative things that have been created. Definitely. And hopefully that work will carry on even when theatres reopen because... It's been fun to see people just making stuff, I think, and just getting yeah. on and making stuff. So the first thing I wanted to ask you was, the first thing I ask everybody on this podcast, how did you first get interested in the arts? Oh, well, um, when I was very young, because um, I grew up, or you and I grew up in the same lovely town of Pitalbert. It's, lo- oh, it's the best <laughs> <laughs> But unfortunately, I grew up on the Sandfields estate, which has its stigmas attached to it. Mm. And I think my parents were very eager to encourage me to stay off the streets and to be as proactive as possible. So thanks to my parents, they put me into a lot of drama classes, dancing, singing, yeah any activities possible really and I just fell in love with um, music and everything to do with it and obviously from us being in a Welsh school 
um, music is very prominent and drama. So I guess from that really, that's where it all kicked off. That's where it all started. And were you involved with Eisden Mode and things like that? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I have a really, <laughs> I have a confession to make about Eisteddfod. I've got a really soft spot for it and I've, I've never won the Eisteddfod and even to this day I really want to win. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that is? What, what is it about it that, that draws you to it? I don't know. I think in Welsh schools, if you win in the Eisteddfod, vote, it's like the biggest thing mm. ever. So I yeah. think I just like I've held on to that from my childhood. And and was it because you're a bit of a polymath? You know, you sing, you dance, you act. Was it dancing first? Was it drama? What kind of drew you in initially? Um. Well, I've. Strangely, the singing came first with me, but I didn't train in singing first. I didn't get any singing teachers or anything. I would just sing in the house. And obviously in school, we sang a lot. But in regards to actually going to class and stuff, it was dancing. Right. Um, I started dance classes um, in the Avalido. I don't know if you remember yes. the Avalido. <laughs> yes. When I was three years old. So that's where it started, dancing. It's, it's a, a strange answer, really, I know, uh, but, yeah, I did start singing first, but actually, proactively, I started dancing first, right. and I didn't do any acting classes until I was 11, 11, I think. Correct. And, and kind of, was there a moment where you kind of thought, this is what I want to do? Uh, did you, when was that? ambition of doing it as a profession kind of when, when did that come was it fairly early on it was very early on i remember doing a um singing competition actually um in oh, in gossain and it was a rubbish little local competition and um i remember my mum said that i said to the commentator that i wanted to be on the west end and when I came off stage, my mum said to me, how do you know where the West End is? Yeah. Like, how do you even know where that place is? And it was just something, I, it just came out of mm. my mouth. And I just knew, I just knew what it was. So, forever, I've always known that if I wasn't dancing and singing, I don't really know what I'd be doing and acting. And in terms of your family, were they supportive or was there an element of, of uncertainty there? Did they kind of support what you wanted to do? Uh, this is where I think I'm really lucky compared to a lot of people because my parents really, really pushed for me to do it as a career. I think... I think my parents are quite straightforward and I think if I was terrible they probably would have told me no but I think they saw something then they saw a spark and um, my dad was a musician when he was younger right. but then went into a normal job you know as everybody does and my mum also has a love for singing but growing up when she did um, she had to get a job when she was 16 so never, they never really got the chance to pursue their dreams and I think they were so eager for me to do what I love rather than do what I feel like I have to. Did it ever feel though that they were being kind of overly pushy 
to you. Oh, that, that was one point. <laughs> well, I started playing the harp in school. Right. Very expensive hobby. <laughs> and I begged for a harp, you know, and I didn't grow up with a lot of money. So at the time, my grandparents offered to get me one. This is when I was in Aslavira. Yeah. And um, then everything just got a bit too much for me. I was doing dance competitions. I was around 13, 14 at the time. Dance competitions, you know, really getting my head down with schoolwork, doing every activity the school has to offer. And I just couldn't keep up with practicing the harp enough and all of this. And my mother was really adamant that I was going to continue on with harp and continue on with the lessons. And I just I couldn't handle it in the end. And I had to turn around and say, I can't do, I have to drop something. Yeah. And out of everything, it's the one thing that I don't love as much as everything. But now that I'm older, I do regret that I didn't carry on because I do have, I do love playing the harp still. I've still got my harp, but I do, it's one of the things I do regret. Um, but at the time it was the right thing to do because mm. same as now, I'm doing too much. I was doing too much at the time. And I think there is a temptation to, to say yes, yeah, especially at our age now as emerging artists, to say yes to everything because... I don't know, maybe you feel that that nothing else is going to come along so you've got to say yes to this part, this opportunity, this commission. Whereas I think maybe we need to have a bit more confidence in ourselves as emerging artists and say, OK, I've got loads of work on at this particular point. I can say no to that thing and that doesn't mean that I'll never be commissioned again or I'll never get another part. Do you know what I mean? You're, yeah, you're so right. I, but I'm not sure right. <laughs> that's, that's one of my bad traits. But it's conflicting, isn't it? Because it's also a, a really positive trait to have. But it's one of my negative traits as well. Right. It's really difficult mm. to find that balance, isn't it? I think it is about that balance, to be honest. And it's just... Mm. It's more difficult, I think, when you're early in your career to find that, I think. Mm. So you um, you gained a scholarship to go to drama school. I'm just wondering how important that was for you in your career and maybe what would your life look like now, do you think, if it wasn't for that scholarship? I was incredibly lucky to have gained the scholarship. It's quite a funny story how that happened, but um, the only person that believed in me at that school, I went to Lane Theatre Arts, and the only person that believed in me at the school was the head teacher and the owner, Miss Betty Lane herself. And all the other teachers saw me as a bit of, um, bit too much of a risk. I think growing up in Patalba, you know, we didn't have that opportunity to have that incredible um, training that yeah. other kids get. You know, we did, I didn't learn Shakespeare and I didn't learn, um, didn't do ballet dance exams. I didn't do all of that stuff that middle class children or upper middle class children get the opportunity to do. So I was a bit of a gamble when it came to giving the scholarship. but. It did really change and shape my career today if it wasn't for that um, scholarship because 
you know, oh God, there were so many people in my year who paid to be at Lane, and it was £16,500 a year. And I know, and honestly, I wouldn't have even been able to pay for a term, let alone a year. (laughs) But I learned a lot. I had a Mm. culture shock once I arrived. I... It just gave me a platform for people to take me seriously, you know, having somewhere recognised on your CV makes people, especially in the industry when you go for auditions and stuff, it makes people sit up slightly and think, okay, this person's trained, let's give her a chance, you know, regardless of their background. And, And how did it kind of, if you compare what your kind of attitude was and what your approach was before you started at Lane and when you left. How much of a transformation was there in terms of you as an artist? I think what they really pressed on the most was just being, holding on to who you are when where you're from, as well as showing how you've, how you've improved and how you've adapted. But on top of that, they really emphasise just being a nice person. Right. And I think so many people forget that being a nice person gets you further in life. It honestly does. Yeah. And you should never stand on anyone on your way up. You should always, you know, pass people by as you go up. You don't stand mm. on people as you go up. Because when you fall back down, those people are not going to be there to catch you. Are they? It should be about like taking people with you as well. Do you know what I mean? Building those connections. Definitely. Well, that's what I found, at least. Oh, definitely. Me too. And I I think everyone needs to... One thing I definitely did learn from the training was that everybody... Everybody's got something that you haven't. And I also learned that you will never be the best in the room, and that's okay Mm. as well. Yeah. But I'll just try to be your best, you know? And um, how, what were the challenges for you after graduation and breaking into the industry? Oh, I think after graduation, um, it's the same as probably everyone who graduates, getting that first opportunity is is the big thing because as soon as you get the first one then the ball starts rolling yeah but i think it was the reality for me of realizing that your safety net isn't there any longer which is your school yeah and that you're out in the big bad world on your own now so for me the probably the biggest challenges were understanding that there's going to be gaps in between Mm. your jobs that's inevitable and that um, just learning how to deal with understanding that that's not a negative. I think a lot of my friends also struggled with this as well, feeling, you know, not worth anything because they weren't working in the industry or having those gaps bigger than other people and, you know, comparing themselves to other people. So I think that was one of the biggest challenges was sort of understanding that everybody's path is different mm. and trying not to compare yourself to others. And that is really difficult, you know, when you see, especially when you see people who maybe you think are similar to you 
getting work when you're not getting work and it's yeah. almost kind of an automatic reflex then to make that comparison it can be difficult just yeah, to absolutely. think about yourself and your own path so I totally mm. identify with that mm. but do you think you were given enough skills in drama school to be able to navigate the industry as an emerging artist no I really don't and I do think you know I would never speak badly of my school that I went to in particular I think it's an overall general thing that's missing in all drama schools personal opinion this is mm. I have found a lot of my friends have found it really hard once they leave including myself um, you're not taught or told or um or or you're not prepared enough to know that there are going to be those gaps and all your all all the way through our training we were forced also to feel as though being on the west end is the be and end all mm. and i think that is so wrong you know because I all agree. forms of anything in this industry is incredible whether it's fringe work whether it's just very difficult i think that's the one thing that drama schools are missing is teaching everybody that all forms of anything in this industry is good work cruise yes. ships anything it doesn't matter the west end isn't the only thing that you need to achieve in life i think one of the main problems with the industry which i hope will change after covid is how london centric it is you know, if you want to work in the industry, you have to yeah. work in London. Yeah. It shouldn't be like that for me. I think... Yeah. I don't know if you agree with this, but there should... There shouldn't be a stigma towards people who are making exciting work in Cardiff or Bristol or nothing like that, but you Absolutely. don't... You shouldn't have to be considered a success in London to be considered successful. I, is that something you agree with? Oh, absolutely. I felt, I felt a slight um, inkling of shame when I first moved home. Right. When I came back. Um, because, you know, I couldn't cope in London. I think financially it's very difficult to keep yourself afloat in London, especially as an actor. And... And people just like assuming that if you live in London, then you are successful. I think it's yeah. so wrong to put that on people. It's really bad for your mental health. And I think there's so much amazing things going on here in Wales. Absolutely. You don't need to feel forced or pressured to stay in London or even go to London at all, you know? I was, Craig Coombs was the guest on last week's episode of the podcast. And he moved back to Neat after being, uh, after finishing in, in his conservatoire. And he said it felt like a failure to him because he hadn't made it through in London. Would you kind of identify with that? I would, I, I definitely would say at the start of moving back, I felt a slight guilt and worry what other people thought, mm. but I never, but I never thought it was a failure on my behalf. If anything, 
once I came to terms with it, I, I felt like actually it was something quite courageous to do because mm. I put my mental health first. Um, I was willing to come home and feel more safe than to struggle my way through living in London. <laughs> uh, and that's really important. We forget about that, I think. Absolutely. I'm going to move on slightly. Um, I'd like to ask you, what is your process as an actor? And um, does it vary depending on the project that you're working on? Oh, this is a good question. Um, it definitely varies. I can use two comparisons. Um, for instance, when I did Nativity Rocks, there was no script. Right. It was all improv. And when we, when when we'd be in our trailers getting our makeup done, usually when you're waiting to go on set, you've got your script in front of you. You know what scene you're doing that day. You know what yeah. location you're on. So you okay. Usually you um, know what location you're on and everything, but when I did Nativity, you, <laughs> I had absolutely no idea where I was going to be. Right. We had no script, no, no nothing. So you'd go on set and the director would say, this is where, this is the type of scene that I need and this is where I needed to go. And then she would say, um, here's a couple of key points that I need you to put in the in the in this scene. So but other than that, that's it, and let's just go for it. So you had the structure of the scene. You knew kind of what your character, yeah, where you started and where you needed to get to, but the content. Yeah. So there was no dialogue. There was no dialogue. No dialogue. No dialogue at all. Um, in a way, I found that experience quite... Um, when In the morning when you first got on set, it was stressful because it was like, oh my God, how am I going to be able to do this on the spot? Yeah. However, you had absolutely no pressure for your character to be as they've set it. There was no pressure to remember lines. There was no pressure to be correct at the first take, nothing like that. Right. And then on the complete opposite, when I did the left behind, it was, yes. it had to be correct to the T, every single word had to be word perfect. My character, I had to like really break down my character before I even went on set. We actually had rehearsals for right. the left behind. Was that something that Alan Harris had specified, or was that to do with more the director on the left behind? I kind of feel as though it must have came from Al, uh, Alan to the director because the director was very he was very keen for it to be as perfect as possible, right. word for word. And if it wasn't, we would go back and do another take. I, like as as a playwright, as a writer, I can see where he's coming from on that. Mm. But again, I suppose you want to give your actors a bit of creative freedom, as long as Absolutely. it doesn't, as long as it doesn't spoil the writer's intention. You know, Absolutely, I don't yeah. see a problem with it. But out of those two experiences, which are we going to talk more about the left behind later? 
But out yeah. of those two, which did you enjoy more as an actor? As an actor, I definitely enjoyed The Left Behind more. Right. Um, I think it was the challenge. It was an incredible challenge. Um, probably the hardest, most um, difficult role and script that I've ever had to take on before. So, The Left Behind was about the rise of far-right extremism. Uh, and you played Tracy, who's a character who'd been politically radicalised. Mm. What was that like? Because it seems like a character that is quite removed from who you are as an individual. And especially, you know, we associate the far right was kind of white nationalism. Was it interesting for you as someone from an ethnic minority background to play that sort of character? It was very interesting. Um, and I think for me that was the main challenge of the character. Because, um, you know me, um, I'm not... I'm not at all that way inclined. No. And it was also surprising and a learning curve to me to find out that there are people of an ethnic background who are that way because of the community they are brought up in and around. And I can completely understand how it would happen. Having a dad who is white and a mum who is black, if as the character, I was only brought up around my white side of my family, who were radical. I would understand how you would fall into that way of living and that way of understanding, because it's it's um, it's nature, not nurture, isn't it? Mm. You know, nurture. Sorry, it's nurture, not nature. So it's what it's what she was learned. But the only way I could tap into that side of the character was by connecting the feeling with an experience that I had experienced before, rather than connecting the actual situation. So taking the situation out and connecting the emotions instead. It was interesting in what your process was. Because I imagine at the start it was like, I am nothing like this person. So how do you kind of tap into what their psyche is? And kind of, did you manage to build an empathy for this character? I did. I really, really did. (laughs) That would probably be surprising for a lot of people, but... And also, when, when I watched back the programme as well, and, and when I spoke to the director, he did say that he really wanted the character to be lovable. Like, he wanted the audience mm. to connect with her too. And I think um, that that was also a challenge, to make her lovable, you know? But, yeah, um, yeah it was very difficult to be that way inclined. But in order to get to that mental state... Yeah. What I did was in my mind was sort of take out the radical, you know, I took okay. that out of it. And I looked at it more as if, um, when I was acting it anyway, I was looking at my fellow actors 
as enemies rather than just general, you know, radical hate. It was more like I just didn't like them as a person, yeah, yeah. you know. That's how I had to face it in order to, for it to be as real as possible. Um, but, oh, it was a lot of fun. I know it's strange to say, but it was really fun. You know, I can see <laughs> how it would be. I mean, it was an interesting piece to watch. I really yeah. enjoyed it when it was on... Um, last year um so i off the back of that i just wanted to ask you if you've experienced any racism or other form of discrimination during your career and how have you kind of combated that i think during um during my professional career i've not experienced it that much in all honesty, and um, there was a video that I did put out on BBC Sesh at one point, and there was a couple of comments which you shouldn't read. Um, did say how I was blind to the fact that I'm black and things like that. So it was quite. It was actually racial abuse from like the other side, which was interesting. That's interesting. So that um, so that came from black people. Oh, yeah, that's really in interesting. Yeah, in the comments I had um, said things like, you need to open your eyes, you don't know what the real world is like, and blah, 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 and you're not connected to your black side. And I was like, are you for real? This is so <laughs> bizarre to experience. But I think, you know, the videos, talk about the videos you've done for BBC Sash, that kind of opens... That, I imagine, is a really difficult thing to do because you're opening yourself up to those kinds of comments and you're leaving yeah. yourself quite open. So did you, did you feel vulnerable? Um, I did for a moment in time, but um, I think BBC Sesh, they're really good. They do sort of sit you down before you make any content at all, before you're even your first video with them. They do sit you down and warn you of all the things that can come and how not to read the comments and how, you know, they, they were very good when it came yeah. to that. So I did sort of take the majority of the comments on the chin, you know, and threw it off and passed it by. And I don't, I don't sit and read the comments anymore. No. Um, but I think I was, I was prepared for it. And, but it was difficult to be myself rather than being a character. I think I would probably rather be Tracy any day. <laughs> I, I, just on that, like you were highlighting your own life experiences. Like, mm. what, what were the challenges of that rather than, you know, playing a fictional character? I think you just feel so... You feel like an easy target in a way, don't you, when, you, mm. um, when, when you're yourself. And I think also it breaks down the barriers because a lot of people assume they know you. And I think from these videos, it gives me anyway the opportunity to allow people to know who I really am in a way. I mm. think people just have a perception of me and, and a perception that I don't necessarily like either. So I think mm. these type of videos sort of help in a way for people to understand my background, understand where I've yeah. come from, who I am and how I am, where I, where I am today, you know? Yeah, I mean, people always build up these perceptions of, of anyone, 
you know, and it's really interesting to see someone be that honest, um, especially an actor, because I think actors tend to hide behind character, or we only see actors through the lens of character, and to see someone being open and honest as themselves, I find mm. really interesting. Mm. Uh, I'm going to move on slightly. So, this is something completely different. Um, so, you've appeared in Pantomime twice, once in Swansea in 2018-19, and you're in Northampton in 2016. How does your approach for Pantomime differ to other types of theatre? Um, oh, well, playing the character that I always play, which is the fairy, um, she has to be quite, again, she has to be loved by the audience and she has to, you know, she moves the story on quite a lot. But I have to be quite um, monotone and like my accent has to, so I keep a Welsh accent but I try and RP it out just slightly. Right. Um, yeah, because pantomime obviously is quite a traditional theatre form, especially in the UK. Um, so it's a, it's a very different approach to say you know doing any musical um mm. yeah i think i find i find the fairy is quite a big role really and i think people don't realize how big of a role she is and she, it's also quite hard because she doesn't really get a chance to have script with another person she usually jumps yeah. on and just does a dialogue with us, she does like quite a big chunk of monologue a lot, yeah. and then throws in a couple of songs, <laughs> which is largely kind of not pure exposition, but it's like mm. the development of the story, isn't it? And without without the fairy, you wouldn't have that story development or that plot exactly. development. Exactly. Yeah, she's basically the, the narrator in a way, you know, a glorified narrator. And, and is it different every night, you know, are there things that you kind of have to prepare for every night, or does it kind no, of... No, I, have, I heavily re rely on audience, mm. it's really bad, and the <laughs> moment you jump on and sing your first little, because you all, every time I've done it, the first thing I do is I sing like a bar or so first as I jump on right. and it's the in initial reaction that I get off the audience is how I know the rest of the show is going to go I see <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of rely on the audience for being a good responsive audience and in the big monologue that I say at the start I kind of if I feel like the audience isn't given much I do stay on for a bit longer and try and encourage them to be as responsive as possible because the more the more the audience respond in a panto the better the energy mm. and the better the cast and the faster the script i suppose the form gives you more opportunity to do that that's Absolutely. what you couldn't do in a more traditional musical yeah, or well, a yeah exactly play. Exactly. If you're on a musical and you run on in the audience are flat and then everybody runs backstage and like this is the worst show ever. <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and do you enjoy, we've talked about improv um, slightly before, but do you enjoy that kind of playfulness that it offers you? 
Yeah, especially uh, I absolutely love panto for that. Especially after you've been doing, and once you once you're in it for about two weeks, we all get very comfortable. Right. So uh, quite a lot of the actors we do tricks on each other to keep it like really interesting because you know it can get quite boring because we do the show twice a day. You know. Yeah. So it can get quite boring, but um, often we um, set like booby traps on each other. And, <sighs> It's, it's very fun. And you were saying about keeping it fresh. Is it sometimes difficult to keep it fresh every performance and go into it with the same energy as you'd done the previous performance? Oh, absolutely. Especially a matinee. And you, it's just like the stigma with a matinee, isn't there? Yeah. That the audience isn't going to be that great. Um, but... Yeah, you've just got to go in with the same mindset that it's the first show and it's the mm. first time. And I think I was more on my toes when I was in Swansea um, because more or less every show there was someone in that I knew, whether it be a friend or a family yeah. member or a neighbour. So I was very on my toes during Swansea and I didn't have a moment of sitting in the show a lot. I, I was see. on my toes, which in a strange way... As a perform, as like my performance level stayed consistent throughout the whole time, but as an actor, Jesus Lord, it was draining, very I draining. Imagine. I could, I couldn't have an off day. No, and doing that twice a day for a month, I, I can't imagine how you did that. It's incredible to me. I'm gonna move on slightly because you, very excitingly are the co-artistic director of Academy Arts by Ebony and Julissa, which is a dance and theatre school. I, I'm interested to know, how did you set the company up? So, um, from a very young age, I've always wanted my own dance school. It's always been um, a secret dream of mine. And also, my wife is a dancer also. Right. That's how we met. And she's from Swansea, and she's always wanted a dance school herself. Um, her current career trade is a social worker. Okay. But um, the main reason why I wanted to open the school was to give the area I grew up in and the kids around it opportunity to do what I've done or the leeway to do what I've done at least, you know, the option mm. to do it or not. And um, we encourage children of all different backgrounds and looked after children, children with any additional needs, disabilities. There is literally no, um, there's no criteria for our school. And I do find some of the dance schools that I went to grew up, growing up, if you didn't fit in, then you didn't come in. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's so unfair. Yeah. I, 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 I felt that. You know, on a couple yeah. of occasions, even just going to shows, you know, yeah. even just watching these shows, never yeah. seeing anyone like me, and you probably yeah. felt the same. You know, it was very yeah. kind of. I know it was for Talbot, but it still seemed white, middle class, able bodied. You know, hundred percent. Even the dance school I went to, which was it was literally on Sandfield's estate. It was for people with money. My poor and able-bodied as well. I mean, yeah. I saw quite a lot of people get turned away at the door, and it angered me as well. And I just, I find it so frustrating. So, 
what what kind of response have you had since you started? Well, the first day we opened, we got thirty children through the door on the first day, Fantastic. which is crazy numbers. Um, and ever since now, we we've grown to. So we've been open a year and a couple of months. Um, we were we were only open for about. Um, six months when the pandemic hit so that was a shock to the system yeah but um we've got a nice family dance family of around 85 currently uh, i was gonna ask you well uh, how have you have you adapted and engaged with your young people during lockdown and, and what have been the challenges of that Mm. So we um, took the real big risk of opening our own studio. We've taken on a building, which probably (laughs) during a pandemic isn't a very logical thing to do. (laughs) But you can't let life hold you back. (laughs) So we went for it. But um, it has been really challenging to engage the young people online, um, especially over Zoom and things, because because we do take on a lot of different ability children whether it's need whether it's children with adhd we've got a lot of children with additional needs a lot of children with um just loads of things you know and we do have you know your average children too but they but all of our kids are children who prefer it face to face they prefer the energy in the room They prefer the hustle and bustle, they, and so they struggle to engage online. But um, tonight is actually our first time back online after since after Christmas right. and the new lockdown. So we shall see how things go this evening. How are you, feel- a, how are you feeling of, about that tonight? So I'm feeling a bit apprehensive, but um, I've got a few fun games to play, which I think will get them really excited and... I just want them to come online to just see, see their friends also, you know, yeah. and keep up the interaction with other people because I really fear for them once we come back that they're going to struggle socially. And what kind of ages are you working with? And so we work from potty trained, so if you can use the loo, you can come, um, all the way up to the age of 16, but yes. currently our oldest is around 14, um, and we also do some adult classes as well. So I bet it's going to be far more difficult to engage with, with the toddlers you work with than yeah, the teenagers. Yeah. A lot of the toddlers don't come online, so you know we don't force anyone no. to come online or anything. It does impact us financially, um, but it's fine. You know, I, we understand everybody's situation. Mm. So yeah. Uh, and what are your ambitions for the company going forward? In... So my ambitions. Ooh. So I would love to take the kids to as many competitions as possible. Um, but we will always fundraise and raise as much as the cost as possible so no one feels the pressure, regardless of whether they've got money or not. Um, to really keep forcing a very inclusive space, a very safe space, and also to hopefully get some of these children on TV. Mm-hmm. That's also a big thing that we're planning. And... Um, 
yeah, you know, just a space for people to grow and also hopefully do some acting classes through the medium of Welsh as well. That, that would be fantastic. Really cool. Um, that all sounds brilliant. Um, I'm. Uh, how we do with time? Um, the last thing I'm going to ask you is, um, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in the industry, particularly kind of where we are at the moment regarding coronavirus? Because it's difficult for people who are just starting out. Absolutely. I think my biggest advice would be not to pigeonhole yourself or underestimate the line of theatre or anything that you feel like you can't go into because I think people pigeonhole themselves and sort of stop their own opportunities. Um, I think just try anything and everything and if if you've given something a good go and you realise it's not for you, then at least you can say that you've done it. Would and you, anything, anything is good to pop on your CV, you know? Absolutely. And would you say that is something you've done in the past, kind of putting yourself in, in these boxes? Um, I think I've been very lucky um, with the agency that I've got. I'm with Regan Management and they're mm-hmm. based in Wales and London. They do Welsh work and English work as well and I think I've been really lucky to be with them that I've never been put into a particular box and that's from my CV you can see I've done hardly anything that similar (laughs) nothing at all matches nothing you know the next thing after the other they never really match up I've done a lot a lot of different things and I think that's the only thing that's kept me busy and that's kept me working by not just sticking to one thing. I can tell that from researching you, you know, you've got the left behind and then you've got pantomime as well, so it's a bit, and it shows your range as well as a performer. Yeah. So I think when people say that, they they can say how capable you are and what you can do, you know. And I think, exactly. Um, it's really important. But thank you for your time. It's been fab talking to you. you. Thank uh, you for having me. I've not. I don't think we've seen each other since we were in primary school. No, I know. Well, that's the reality. Surely we saw each other. A oh of yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So but we were yeah. probably like fifteen, sixteen the last oh, time no. we saw each other. That's mad. That's like. That's that's ten, ten, years, ten ago. years ago. That's mad. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> We, we, we're going to have to call up on something. I'll write something for you. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah, 100%. Take, I'm so down for that. I, I would be, especially considering you in the area, let's, let's do it. I'd be really up for that. Oh, I'd be really up for that. Um, but that's, we've come to the end of this episode of In Lockdown With. But um, I will see you on the next episode where my guest... Hopefully, will be Emily Nicole Roberts, who is sort of a bit different for this podcast. She creates online content for YouTube and social media, and she's got CP, so it would be fab to catch up with her to see what kind of work she's been making over the last few months. But for now, it's bye from me, and it's bye from Julissa. Bye! Bye!
Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.